but um, I believe that antibiotics are part of the um, part of the problem. Basically, I see antibiotics being used rather like um, in a very primitive way because you're just using it to knock um, the bacterial overgrowth back. In actual fact, you're probably making it worse. For the period of time that I've used it, they've given me an advantage. I've been able to knock it back until I became resistant. But um, it's rather like um, trying, you know, like a Stone Age man trying to use a, a, a flint axe on a, you know, it really is a primitive way of dealing with this. I'm aiming for a faecal transplant at the moment. That's where I'm going. What I want to do is to try and reverse the condition altogether. Um, the whole thing is um, really complex and it's really, I, I really need a lot more help. I, I'm not really getting that help from the consultants that I'm seeing. A lot of them uh, barely understand this. I don't think that they understand any more than I do. And these are just, uh, a lot of this is um, a lot of guesswork on my behalf just to try and keep myself alive. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of podcast Medical Error Interviews, and in this episode, I interview Paul Smith, an artist and self-described workaholic. For years, Paul experienced weird and debilitating symptoms. They would come and go, sometimes completely dissipating for periods of time. Paul experienced flu-like symptoms, pain, nausea, muscle weakness, confusion. He had problems with his speech, vision, and balance. He also had breathing problems, so that at times he felt like he was suffocating to death. These symptoms were so intense that Paul thought he was going to die. And as such, he wrote letters to his children. But doctors dismissed Paul's symptoms. Instead, they gave him a diagnosis of somatization, which basically means that there's nothing physically wrong with you, it's all in your head. For years, Paul went to see different doctors, and all of them would first see the somatization label at the front of his medical record and dismiss all of his physical symptoms. Then Paul experienced an abscess growing beside his bowel and developed life-threatening sepsis. The doctors could not ignore these facts. Paul was treated for the sepsis with antibiotics, and his other symptoms completely disappeared. Yet when he finished the treatment of antibiotics for the sepsis, his symptoms gradually returned, and Paul became sick again. He returns to the doctor. The doctor sees the somatization label on the front of his medical record and dismisses Paul's physical symptoms. This continues on for years, but Paul did not give up. Finally, Paul found two physicians who believed what Paul was telling them. And after 20 plus years of experiencing these symptoms, he finally and correctly got a diagnosis of D-lactic acidosis, which is an overgrowth of bacteria in the gut. And these bacteria were flooding Paul's body with its neurotoxin. 
Paul suspects that many other people that have been diagnosed with ME or given a somatization label may in fact also be experiencing bacterial overgrowth. Paul had to fight for years to get the wrong somatization diagnosis removed from his medical record. That label prevented Paul for years from getting proper diagnosis and treatment. And Paul contends that that somatization label is in fact a human rights violation. If you are dealing with repercussions from your own medical error, or living with a chronic illness, or LGBT issues, or any of other life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. You can support the podcast by subscribing at Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And please leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron and becoming a monthly donor. If you go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews, you can become a premium patron. Now, here is my interview with Paul Smith, but a note of caution. Some people may be disturbed by Paul's experiences with the healthcare system. Uh, so I like to start back with sort of childhood, just generally, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Were you healthy, unhealthy? Yep. I was very, I was very healthy. Um, my childhood, um, was pretty good in Cheltenham. It's pretty normal. Um, yeah, I was a, a very healthy child. Um, I wasn't really into sports and things. I think I did sports when I, after I left school. I started getting into weight training and sort of um, keeping myself fit just became a, um, a way of life. Um, but it was uh, um, while I was at school, uh, I remember sort of um, hiding in the, uh, well, I'd come in with a note. <laughs> sort of I was one of the ones that wouldn't, didn't want to go out in the cold. I was at um, a school that was run by um, priests. Very, very good. Um, it was a very good school and they were very good um, teachers and very good. and um, uh, it was a Catholic school. I wasn't a Catholic, but um, yes, and they used to get us to go out in the cold and run sort of all the way around the school and up the hill in freezing weather. And I was a tiny little skinny thing that used to hate the cold, so I'd come with a note. But when I left school, um, I um, things changed quite re um, quite remarkably, and I um, did a lot of keep fit. Uh, what did you do after uh, what I refer to as high school, the post-secondary, what did you do post-secondary school? Right. I studied art, um, European political history, and sociology oh. for A-level. I then went on, um, um, uh, I didn't go back to later on, um, to be honest. I did my degree in fine art much later. In my 30s, um, I when I left um, well when I left school, um, I eventually went into um, electronics as an electronics engineer. It's something I just a job. It's something I probably didn't really want to do. I wasn't that interested. I wasn't um, um, that much. Uh, it wasn't you know it wasn't a, a, a drive like electronics is with some kids. Um, it was a job. Um, I really wanted to get back and uh, make art. And I spent, um, it took me till I was in my 30s to actually decide to go back and do a degree in fine art. I'm majoring in philosophy, um, but sculpture and fine art was my, was the thing that I really wanted to do. And it was marvellous, probably the best years of my life. Um, wow. I think I, did a, I actually did a foundation course as well, late. Um, that was probably one of the best things that I ever did. I think everybody should do a fan, an art foundation course in life. It should just be part, um, either that or um, join the army as a... <laughs> um, it, it, it was extremely good. I think probably you should do both in life. I could see um, there's a, a need probably in this country to have um, the old... Um, do you remember where we had in the 1950s, we had conscription? 
I think it's um I've read about it. either that or a foundation course um <laughs> both very different but they both achieve sort of similar objectives I don't know discipline but, yes it was it was extremely it um I was already quite disciplined by the time I got there but there was a lot you know it um it teaches you to be disciplined I think making art teaches you to be disciplined um you have to think you have to discipline your thoughts and um I was really quite sort of um what's the word for it um well I really went for it I really wanted to sort of get on and I pushed myself really hard um it was really unfortunate it was after I left college that I started getting problems for the first time um and there's a lot of possibilities um in you know in terms of um um, how I developed um, chronic fatigue or ME um, in the first place and ended up at this point with the lactic acidosis because I did have, um, I had rebuilt um, three houses where I'd worked on them and I'd got involved with some pesticides and you know um, I was actually um, at the point that I started to fall ill this was in the, um, before I got really ill this was probably 1990s mid 1990s uh, well no actually early 1990s that's when I'd actually had the um nearly forgotten now so long ago when I'd been involved with pesticides I was actually sent into Loftus after they'd sprayed the loft um with pesticides and um, didn't know that it you know what had occurred but I started having mild problems from that point and um I then went to work in the loft space um, cutting, sawing the timbers that had been treated with these. Um, I later went back and had someone actually take a look and find out what was in there. And there were um, someone had treated it again and again. It had been treated over a number of years for the same woodworm. And um, when I went back, I decided that I wanted to floor the loft. I needed um, an area to store my sculpture. Uh, the loft was at someone had sprayed over sort of three or four inches of dust and debris. My house was built in about 1840s and it must have been sprayed again and again. Well, I got a shovel and dustpan and brush and I fell, fell ill on the spot. That was the first time I'd ever really um, encountered any sort of really weird problems. Um, from that point, I carried on working, getting more ill. Um, so, uh, yeah. so when was that that you had that really acute uh, downfall and what were just the before symptoms I fell ill to experience it was just before I fell ill but I was also using non-steroidals as well non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for the, okay. about the same period that I had exposure to um, um, pesticides this okay. was literally just before I fell ill what sort of symptoms were you experiencing there were fatigue muscle pain um, I would find I would have abnormal fatigue after doing things but that's what happened prior to me starting to fall ill. I had something, um, I had non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which has affected your gut. Um, they can also affect the mucosal lining of the gut and the healing process altogether in terms of, because they, um, um, non-steroidals um, inhibit uh, proteoglycan, a number of different synthesis, and they can inhibit it to quite a, um, a high level um, I was taking these and um, um, while continuing to work, train and all the rest of it and I, I had suffered um, uh, basically uh, I've been working extremely hard lifting heavy weights for both sculpture uh, for rebuilding the house you know, for, and for training as well so I was um, a bit of a workaholic I actually managed to damage both shoulders and collapse my disc this is, this is the point at which things started to get bad for me um, these, this was exactly the point um, that which I also encountered um, the pesticides and was given non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So it's very difficult for me to know exactly what caused this problem because there are a number of things that could be um, that could be uh, impacting. Yeah. Yeah. So just so I have this clear in my head, so uh, potential factors that may have caused your onset of ME uh, or that diagnosis of ME uh, was the non-steroidal use, the exposure to the uh, pesticides, yeah. uh, doing a lot of heavy work where you're doing damage to your shoulders and neck. 
Well, it, it was, it was, a lot of hours. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and instead of um, taking a step back, I was the sort of person that would just push. So I used non-steroidals, didn't realize that they masked the pain and, and inhibited healing. They're probably the worst thing you could have for the type of injuries that I had, but they were also damaging my gut at the same time. And I developed a bowel perforation with sepsis. Um, this was, this was um, at the point that I fell ill. This is um, when I had, uh, when I started the delactic symptoms, I don't even know which came first because I developed um, uh, infection symptoms along with delactic symptoms and they may be related as well. Uh, can you tell folks what the delactic acid is? Um, even though you didn't get a diagnosis of that quite yet and as you're telling the story, just so folks yep. have an idea of what that is. Delactic um, acidosis is, um, or delactic acid, is um, produced by abnormal um, overgrowth of gut bacteria in the small intestine. It um, sounds pretty benign, but it certainly isn't. And I believe that there's a number of different types of bacterial overgrowth that could be affecting some, uh, um, some people. IBS, I believe, is caused by bacterial overgrowth. That's at the more benign end. I believe that they're the worst versions of um, bacterial overgrowth that can cause, um, uh, basically, they, um, the gut bacteria produce uh, metabolites. And at the top end, the metabolite is um, delactic, uh, a delactic acid, probably alongside a number of other um, metabolites as well. Um, Shidi um, um, and uh, the Australian researchers have done a fair amount of investigation and it's their belief that there is more than one metabolite um, involved um, and it would explain a lot but the delactic producing ba um, bacteria um, producing a neurotoxin delactate explains uh, would explain uh, neurological symptoms in a lot of people and this, is why I'm, this is why I've been interested because I've been diagnosed with it when I understood I've been also been told that I had chronic fatigue and ME, and um, it's my belief that this may be affecting a number of uh, other people as well. I'm highly unlikely to be the only person suffering from this. And as um, the Australian researchers have already found, um, uh, delactic acid and a number of their, uh, well, delactic producing bacteria at high levels in a number of their patients, it's a, it's a good possibility for, um, um, symptoms that um, I'd expected to kill me when when this um, uh, when when this when things uh, worsened I fell ill really ill in 1999 I'd had the symptoms I'd had that I've told you about which you would you would call ME were very mild compared with um, the change in 1999 um, I developed both infection on this was on top of the other fatigue and the other problems I developed um, uh, infection symptoms and delactic symptoms and um, they are uh, very hard um, to tell apart in the early stages because um, delactic acidosis acts very much like an infection it feels like an infection um, and I find it very difficult I've had sepsis and I've had I find it very difficult in the early stages to um, be able to identify um, the delactic symptoms separately from any other infection, especially at the beginning, at the at, at a, a very sort of um, low level of it in the early stages. Um, I mean, I have to basically kill it off with antibiotics. But once it starts, I get flu-like symptoms. Um, they worsen, and I can get a number of other symptoms as well. You can feel quite sick. You can get abdominal pain. Um, you can get develop muscle weakness, not all necessary altogether either. You, can get mul you get multiple symptoms, but you don't necessarily get the same symptoms. I've had breathing problems that are so bad from the acidosis itself, because it's the um, level of acidosis in your bloodstream that causes uh, breathing problems. The neurological symptoms come from it entering spinal fluid, and it can cause all sorts of problems. Um, I've had uh, visual problems, um, confusion, slurred speech, um, I, I don't even know, uh, loss of balance, um, they can come and go, the whole thing can fluctuate as well. The levels of delactic 
um, production can fluctuate um, quite ex in extreme. And I've had um, uh, periods when the symptoms will just disappear for what I don't even understand for what, whatever reason. And then they come back for months on end. They can vary throughout the day as in ME. Um, they can vary um, so much that you, you're expecting to die. I was um, from 1999. Um, I thought um, when we entered the millennium, I thought I'd entered hell. Um, the symptoms were so bad um, that I was either expecting to die or to have to commit suicide. And I actually told them, um, they sent me to see psychiatrists and I told them that I couldn't manage these symptoms. I couldn't live with them. They were impossible to live with. It was very lucky that I didn't do anything like that. And it, um, it, the only reason I think that I didn't commit suicide was because um, I have children and the last thing I wanted to do was to leave them fatherless. Um, but there have been occasions and I've had to um, make a will out when these symptoms had got so bad before I was diagnosed that um, I had to leave, um, make a will and a letter to explain um, the possibility because I wanted to explain that it wasn't their fault if I had to do such a thing and understand why so many people have committed suicide or, uh, or and I am expecting some people with ME to have um, something like this. It's a good possible cause. So uh, prior to 1999 when you got much sicker, uh, what was your experience with the healthcare system during those years when you were sort of mildly sick? pretty useless they did do a lot of them um, they did do a lot of investigations they didn't understand anything um, they did find things but they tended to put down that they hadn't found anything I actually had um, frequently raised CK levels I also had um, at the point I was given the somatization diagnosis I had raised LT and it was raised continuously through the period that they were giving me the somatization that I was seeing psychiatrists and they were Sorry, writing down. Uh, so when were you given the somatization diagnosis? And for folks who aren't familiar with that term, what is that? And you also mentioned two other tests that you had high, CK and LT. What are those things? CK levels show abnormal, abnormal muscles. Or uh, uh, CK levels can also show abnormal heart problems as well. But mainly it's um, muscle function. Um, ALT is to do with the liver. It raised LT shows a problem with liver. It's likely that this was to do with the infection I had at the time. The CK levels carried on even when the infection was um, was stopped. But two years after I um, fell ill in 1999, when things changed seriously and I developed dilactic symptoms and infection symptoms, um, I was given a somatization diagnosis. And I believe that the somatization diagnosis on its own um, can be seen as a human rights issue in its own right um, because it's unreasonable di uh, it's an unreasonable diagnosis based on a presumption that anyone suffering from multiple changing symptoms that remain undiagnosed um, with um, with their, with normal diagnostic tools for a period of two years may be diagnosed with somatization that's the whole premise it's crazy so they're basically um, saying that if they can't figure out what's wrong with you with their routine checks after two years, therefore yeah. it must be psychological. It's you. So what they're doing is they're saying that if they can't find it, you're the problem. Um, yeah, um, dilactic acidosis causes multiple changing symptoms. It's specifically um, that. So, um, and if you're diagnosed with symptomization, it becomes your diagnosis and no one ever takes you seriously again. It's nicely and neatly swept under the carpet. No one has to deal with you. They don't have to run any further tests because you're nuts. You're just, just all. Somatization basically is um, a diagnosis given when they believe that, um, uh, they tell you that um, your brain is manufacturing the pain and the symptoms. <laughs> nicely so and neatly swept away. When you got that diagnosis, what was your reaction? I was really shocked and upset, to be honest. It was more, I was scared. Um, I was extremely scared because I knew I was really ill. Um, I was suffering problems. I was actually um, on occasion um, even going into shock. In, from 1999 to 2001, 
this was probably one of the worst periods that I was um, ill before they gave me the sanitization. Um, I would have chills and fever um, from the infection. Uh, um, it wasn't, it's not, wasn't the sort of infection that would be um, a permanent infection. It was a massive abscess at the side of my bowel. The non-steroidals had actually caused damage to my, um, to my um, uh, mucosal lining in um, the lower part of my intestine and had actually perforated. Um, it was only found in 2003, this was um, from 99, three years on, when I actually had sepsis. And then it, it was very difficult for them to treat. They thought they treated it and it was still active in 2006. And the, um, the, oh my yeah. God, Paul, let me make sure I heard you correctly. I know, so yes, I know. In around 2000 is when the and steroidals caused a perforation in your bowel and you started to experience sepsis symptoms, which are very serious. Yeah. yeah. But it was at least Infection three then. Yeah. It was three years and it, it was only diagnosed when, the, when I actually had sepsis itself and a huge mass was um, basically, um, and a huge mass was found at that point to travel through muscle and all sorts. I'd have started to develop the dilactic symptoms um, round about the same time. I don't know whether it was due to the infection, whether it was due to the non-steroidals, I have no idea. But the bacterial change that occurred at that point was um, uh, permanent. I've, been, I've lived with it ever since. I've been, I was actually treating myself after that when I noticed that all the symptoms would go after using antibiotics. Um, this was one of the key points in me finding that I had dilactic acidosis was that even after the abscess had finally been um, um, gotten rid of and uh, it was checked at MRI that it was no longer active, there was no sepsis, no, um, um, I was still having symptoms of dilactic symptoms which were treatable with the same antibiotic that the abscess had been treatable with, metronidazole. And that was how I got the first um, understanding that I had to have another infection. I kept going back and telling them from that, from the point um, from about 2003 continuously that I was having other infection, you know, that, that, that I had some other kind of infection. When the, um, um, when the sepsis had been completely eradicated, um, I kept telling them that I was having infection, uh, which, was, um, which I responded to antibiotics. My doctor, who was very good at the time, and um, he'd actually um, uh, written a letter, sent it to A&E. Um, he'd actually stated in it, drunk, not drunk, at the top of it, because I'd had periods of drunk-like confusion. Um, this was, these are the lactic symptoms. And um, he'd actually stated that I wasn't somatizing and asked for blood gases. And um, a consultant also asked for blood gases. This was from 2002, the year before. Um, uh, as soon as I changed surgery and moved to some other doctors, they said, you're not somatizing. Um, even though, I, but once this was lodged in my record, it's, it, it's only been removed in 2017 after I, after they actually found dilactic acidosis. I'd gone back, I have fought the hospital continuously, um, on, you know, um, because of what happened, um, ever since I was uh, misdiagnosed with it. So I knew it was incorrect. Um, even after they found the um, the abscess, they still left the somatization in my records. Um, even though it was absolutely certain that I'd been suffering from a real problem, and this is it. The, it's the basis of somatization that I, one of the things I wanted to talk about to you, because um, the basis of somatization um, is, and this is something that I've got here, it's, um, here we go, I'll, I'll read this out. Sometization itself is diagnosed on the premise that the patient appears to have satisfied, if we've gone into this, the criteria for sometization disorder as defined in the ICD classification of mental illness and behavioral disorders. The main features mm. of sometization dis disorder are multiple, recurrent and frequently changing physical symptoms of at least two years duration. That means that patients like myself with undiagnosed, undiagnosed multiple um, systemic symptoms which include infection and dilactic acidosis, after two years will be put to a serious disadvantage if diagnosed with sometization, which is a highly prejudicial diagnosis. But this also means, this is where it stands as a human rights abuse. It also means that any patients 
who have multiple changing symptoms are on average take more than two years to diagnose, such as MS, Beckett's and systemic lupus are more likely to be diagnosed with somatization disorder. I mean, that is absolutely horrific. Um, this is all based upon, uh, upon this really unreasonable premise. And I think it, it occurs to me that uh, by taking that stance and by creating that label, they are oftentimes denying appropriate diagnosis for all of those other diseases you just mentioned, and no doubt yep. countless others, and that they're also taking that medical error and embedding it in the system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, there's a doctor, so I think it's MDR. Did, I, did you see that thing I put online on um, uh, Phoenix Rising concerning the, there's a psychiatrist who's actually written, I think it's Dr. MD J. Francis, I think his name is. He's written a lot about uh, not just misdiagnosis, but the, I've got it here somewhere, mislabeling medical illness as a mental disorder. He's done a blog concerning this and he's, um, put online the, uh, the problems, including stigmatization for patients who have real, Ill real Ill illness. He's really gone to town on this and it's really worth taking a look. Um, psychologist, Alan J. Francis, MD. So when you got this label of somatization, what negative impacts did that have on your healthcare? I, when I changed surgery, I had a really good doctor and he wasn't closed and he was the one he stated within a few weeks of getting to know me, um, he said that you're not somatizing. And he's like I said, he, he put that, uh, sent that to A&E. But um, other doctors who I didn't get to know um, basically took it as my diagnosis. The, the somatization, it's where it was placed. There's a record in the UK called your significant medical history. It's probably the same in a lot of countries, but you, we all have a significant medical history. It basically is um, um, uh, the first record that a doctor will see. And um, it basically introduces you as a patient, tells you what's wrong, tells you, um, sorry, tells them what's wrong. It, it gives you um, your history. And if you have somatization on there, it's highly influential and highly prejudicial. I didn't get sectioned. I didn't allow any more contact with psychiatrists after that. I stayed clear. Um, what the, I'm only now going back to challenge them because of what they've done. I mean, they caused me, um, they left me literally in hell. I mean, I had something that was extremely um, dangerous. I had two problems. I, I had a really serious infection. I was actually going, um, having um, periods when I was going into shock. Um, I had to warm my body up at night on a number of occasions in front of a fire. Um, I was going in and out of these problems. The infection would be, it wasn't a permanent infection. It was fluctuating because it was locked in a pocket. So as it moved and passed through um, blood vessels, it would enter my bloodstream again, cause problems. And then literally sort of, I would imagine, have cut itself off partially with just um, different influences at different times. But the dilactic symptoms had started from that point and they were really serious. Um, I was suffocating at times as well. I, um, the breathing problems were, I can't even describe it. Um, they, I was seen in A&E and they actually checked my, checked my oxygen level. Then they can be completely normal. The point is that this affects your mitochondria. It, um, what, it, you can have a normal oxygen level, but you're not able to use it. Same as glucose. I, I wanted to, before you... Actual diagnosis. Uh, yeah. What was your family thinking and your friends, and how were you managing to work if you were? Um, before I got the diagnosis, was unable to work. I tried repeatedly to work and to and to do things. One of the things was that even on a day when I felt okay um, and I would try and work, I could. Uh, my energy levels could be uh, would sap really quickly. Uh, I could start. Um, I noticed that when I did things like I tried to do some digging lit tasks, I never gave up. I mean, all this time, especially as I was being told that there was nothing wrong with me, I actually part believed um, what I was being told because during the periods when you don't have an illness, you start to think that 
that, that you must have something psychologically wrong with you. So I would try again and again. And um, one of the things that I found was even um, small tasks, if you did over a period during the day, you could end up with serious breathing problems um, by the evening. You, um, not just energy, but you could become abnormally weak, and very ill, um, very quickly. Um, but no, I, um, I took a lot of chances. I did a lot of things that um, um, even when I was ill, um, I actually remember trying to do things when I was dizzy, when I, uh, sometimes at a very low level, you know, I said that you suffer from confusion and um, um, it can affect you really badly. At the sort of low level, it can cause just continuous dizziness. I think other people have termed this um, brain fog at an even lower level where I just find it hard to think. But this was real, um, really bad dizziness. Um, I would still try and go out and do things um, and still try and uh, I um, suffered very badly um, because of it. But I would go back again and again, keep fighting. I, I actually couldn't believe that there was anything wrong with me. I couldn't understand why um, doctors hadn't identified what was wrong with me. And um, because of that, I thought, well, it must be in my head. I just had to keep. Uh, obviously if I kept trying to one of the things I had in my head was that if I um, actually fought harder you know against it I could break through this thing I could actually you know um, because I of all the years of training and all the rest of it it was, uh, it was me pitching myself against this thing it was um, actually it was the, the wrong thing to do um, on a few occasions when I'd actually repeated the same thing on by the third day I could put myself in bed for weeks um, I would start a task and may start to fall ill. I would go back the next day after having recovered overnight. Um, I was actually given oxygen at one point. They didn't know I was having breathing problems. I had oxygen at home. Um, would use the oxygen and recover partly and start again. By the third day, I could be in serious trouble. You, I couldn't um, reverse. I basically wasn't able to um, um, get over um, these problems I couldn't recover as I could do in the past. There was no normal recovery whatsoever. Um, so if you were at least partially buying into what the doctors were saying that you had a somatization, a psychological yeah. problem, how was your family responding to that? Absolutely. This was um, one of the worst problems. And um, my brother was a doctor. <laughs> and here we go. Um, uh, without naming or um, but basically he um, actually went back and told everyone in my family that it was all in my head and they just turned their backs on me I ended up having to manage without any belief whatsoever because of his status as a doctor he was believed and I wasn't um, a doctor over a, over a sculptor I mean basically um, I've never had anything um, go wrong with me before in that way, never needed any sort of, um, but I was really shocked in the way that people treated me when I got, you know, when I fell ill. And I'd actually gone to them um, almost begging at times because um, one minute I would have abdominal pain, uh, the like of you, I can't even express, but the whole thing could cause all sorts of problems. It could cause breathing problems. I'd have breathing problems. I would, um, be extremely weak, um, close to passing out at times, and people just would just ignore me after this. Uh, except this good doctor that I had, who actually believed me and started trying to get me to other um, to other specialists. I saw several neurologists. This is a neurological illness that I have, but they all, because of the somatization, um, they actually um, two of them actually turned around and said, "Oh, it's classic somatization." They actually did some investigations as well. Um, two of them were top top neurologists, um, and noting that I had definite dilactic um, illness, they were not able to understand it at all. They don't have any comprehension of this particular problem, and this is why I believe that it's a good probable cause. It's a hidden illness. It's something that um, dilactic acidosis is supposed to come from the realms of short bowel syndrome. Now, I'm an example of someone that doesn't have short bowel syndrome that has it. And it's unlikely that I'm the only person um, to have this. Um, 
and I believe that this is why it's been um, hidden for so long. There's a chap on here called, um, this is a doctor, Luke White, um, who is a gastroenterologist that's written a lot. And he basically believes that um, um, dilactic acidosis is far more common than, than was previously thought. He also believes that anyone with bacterial overgrowth can develop a dilactic acidosis. A lot of patients with chronic fatigue and ME have uh, bacterial overgrowth. Um, I also believe that this is um, it's an unex totally unexplored continent um, in terms of gut um, the gut biosis itself. To a lot of people uh, through interviewing them for the podcast that are quite ill, uh, the medical system either gives them a somatization label or they just sort of throw up their hands and don't know what to do or they cause them harm. But a lot of these folks eventually figured out on their own what their problem was through their own research. How did you finally get the proper diagnosis? Um, took a long time, but it, it was also due to people like Malcolm Hooper and Dr. Myhill. Um, I actually went to um, went to Dr. Myhill um, some years ago, and at the point they cut off my funding, she just asked for test for um, gut biosis. So the NHS were funding her, and then cut my funding just at the point she'd found it, the test would have revealed the problem. Um, Malcolm Hooper, Professor Hooper, is. Um, one of the kindest um, people I've ever met. Um, the, both of them are, are heroes. This, um, and they've. Uh, if it wasn't for him, the strength that he gave me, I wouldn't have been able to um, uh, to have gotten through this at all. But the um, the clues came in terms of um, my response to antibiotics. When the infection itself, that that clue had been there for a long time, and um, the doc. The, the really good doctor that I was seeing, I had him for, um, I think it was, I'm trying to work, I saw him in, first of all in 2001, 2014, about 13 years. Um, he, when he retired, he left me a lot of antibiotics so that I could treat this on my own. I wasn't expecting anyone to be able to understand or take, and he probably understood that as well. So he left me enough to be able to um, treat this myself. And from that point, um, I realized I was on my own. I started to um, investigate. I realized that I was in a lot of trouble. Um, and I was um, probably by 2014, by 2016, I was expecting to die from this. Uh, the antibiotics I was becoming um, resistant to. And that was the, the point at which I started to get worried, and it made me it gave me the impetus to actually look further into this. And I came across um, dilactic acidosis quite by chance. I was looking in the right direction, but it's um, after a conversation with Professor Hooper, um, who was talking about fermenting gut, that I, that I got the idea. He's written an awful lot about fermenting gut as well. And this is um, um, partly to do with that. It's misfermentation, basically. It's um, um, uh, whatever's causing this is um is causing a process whereby natural gut bacteria build up in the small intestine and then cause um massive um amounts of um um well production of delactate but this is due to that um due to this imbalance that occurs for whatever reason and this is what needs re researching so how did you find out it was lactic acidosis right um this is at the point that my antibiotics were failing um quite literally um i've been researching for probably about a year or so and literally came literally at the point that i was expecting i'd written my will out and was expecting to die from it um when i um came across dilactic acidosis and the symptoms i realized that they were mine i was absolutely certain I made a, an appointment with a dilactic consultant specifically, and it was diagnosed virtually on the spot. I took in most of my records 
which which showed things like drunk like confusion breathing problems all the rest of these things which are classic symptoms and my response to um uh, metronidazole uh, and other antibiotics and he was um pretty certain from day from day one he said it was the most likely cause of my problems and um uh, later, he's actually made a statement that it was the cause of my problems going back 20 years. So how, how did that feel in that first session when he uh, pretty quickly diagnosed you? It was good, but I got something else from it as well, something I hadn't understood at all. And it was worth every penny of going privately to see him because I, he gave me a diet. Uh, the diet itself restricts the use of carbohydrates and sugars and restricts the production of delactate. You know, the, the, the neurotoxin, and that was priceless. Um, I've been able to apply those things. I haven't applied it absolutely or properly because I still get some, some episodes and there's, but it means that I do have a means of controlling it without antibiotics. I've made a lot of mistakes and there are periods when I can't um, get hold of the correct foods. I'm running if Brexit's gonna have a bit of a prop, be a bit of a problem for me as well. <laughs> if we all, um, if we all um, uh, find it difficult to get foods in this country and uh, by the um, in a month's time, but uh, we we'll have to see. So that's interesting that uh, a low carb, low sugar diet would help you so much because so many folks with different types of autoimmune illnesses seem to do better on diets like that. And that that that's a there's a reason I I believe because. Um, bacterial overgrowth also affects the um, the gut, and um, uh, it can damage the gut badly enough to cause autoimmune problems. Um, one of the reasons I this is this is all connected, but one of the reasons I realised that um, delactic acidosis has never been understood as an infection because that's what I believe it is. Although it's bacterial overgrowth, I believe that it's an infection. It's a hidden infection is because it acts like an infection but doesn't raise your temperature. The bacteria remain in the gut. They don't cross into the bloodstream as a normal infection and spread in the, in the bloodstream. And uh, there's no raising temperature because of that. In general, they stay within the gut, but the metabolites, which are things that make you ill, exit the gut, including delactic acid. But small quantities will damage the mucosal lining and may may cause an immune response so the diet would that's a, a, a logically a possibility of a cause of a autoimmune disease as well bacterial overgrowth may be causing a lot of problems wow so i'm just thinking as we've evolved as people that uh, we've consumed more and more carbs as as time has gone on yeah um, it's hard not to make that link although correlation is not causation, but in your case, it is causation, or it's a contributor. Yeah, but there may be other um, causal links as well. There are so many, I've, now I can list a lot, including antibiotics themselves. Antibiotics can select for certain types of overgrowth through a process of both, um, they can favor certain bacteria, but they can also cause bacterial overgrowth through resistance. Um, so um, when certain bacterial colonies gain resistance, they gain, um, they're basically given, um, uh, they're basically helped. Uh, continued use of antibiotics will decimate other colonies to the advantage of certain colonies. And that means that we've, the introduction of antibiotics, it seems to be, um, from the, the point at which we started to get chronic fatigue and ME, but we're also using these things in our farm animals. We're getting low levels of um, antibiotics coming through, which means we're educating these bacteria to become resistant um, uh, with low levels within food products as well. That's one of the one of the ways. So if you if you look at both the high use of carbohydrates and the introduction of antibiotics and a number of other factors, I mean use of non-steroidals. Um, there may be a number of contribu uh, contributing factors. Um, yeah, I wouldn't imagine until a number of people have been diagnosed and you can get some statistical data on this and you can actually find out correlating factors that, um, that this will actually be useful. But I'm, this, I'm sort of guessing ahead at the moment. But um, I believe antibiotics are a part, part, of, the, um, part of the problem.
although they're also used as to, to um, um, uh, basically I see antibiotics being used rather like um, um, uh, in a very primitive way because you're just using it to knock um, the bacterial overgrowth back. In actual fact, you're probably making it worse. For the period of time that I've used it, they've given me an advantage. I've been able to knock it back until I became resistant. But um, it's rather like um, trying, you know, like a Stone Age man trying to use a, a, a flint axe on a, you know, it really is a primitive way of dealing with this. I'm aiming for a fecal transplant at the moment. That's where I'm going. What I want to do is to try and reverse the condition altogether. I've had some success temporary with, uh, with probiotics as well. Um, but I've used probiotics with lactic acid, acid producing bacteria. Um, the whole thing is um, really complex and it's really, I, I really need a lot more help. I, I'm not really getting that help from the consultants that I'm seeing. A lot of them uh, barely understand this. I don't think that they understand any more than I do. And there's a lot of controversy. Um, um, in fact, um, in terms of probiotics, you read that um, lactic producing bacteria may, be, uh, may make things worse. Well, I think the thing is that um, just like E. coli, there's uh, good forms of E. coli, bad forms of E. coli. You can use certain E. coli can be used as a as a probiotic. Um, you can, um, but it depends upon the actual um, type within you know within the genus. Um, and nobody's mapped the, the gut biome. Nobody has any idea of differences in terms of DNA. In terms of it's an unexplored continent. And these are just a lot of this is um, a lot of guesswork on my behalf just to try and keep myself alive. Um, and I'm hoping that I can track this from the outside. It'll be very difficult um, without, uh, without um, uh, the sort of help that I need at the moment to get a, a full reversal. It's difficult to live with. It still is. It's a lot better than someone with ME that obviously doesn't have... Um, 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 that doesn't have a diagnosis and I imagine there will be a few a few people with this I believe that it may already have caused some deaths it's a likely suspect I mean it it's a a multiple uh, neurological systemic producing bacteria uh, diagnosis uh, how did that if at all change how your family and especially your brother has reacted no it uh, it hasn't in fact, I would say that um, I'm fighting the hospital. I'm fighting the NHS. I've actually put all, uh, I've sent all this information off. I've asked them to investigate. They don't want to investigate. The local NHS are fighting tooth and nail at the moment. Um, and my brother um, ha is basically um, fighting uh, uh, me himself. Um, uh, when I was given this psychological diagnosis, he knows the doctor that gave it to me. Um, the doctor saw me for 10 minutes and my brother used this as a reason um, for, um, he said that, um, he said, oh, we only have uh, 10 minutes to see patients. Well, at that time we had an awful lot more time than, uh, than we do now, you know. But, um, he said, oh, he said, uh, he said, oh, uh, he said, um, uh, 10 minutes, uh, he, he said, it's not his fault, it's uh, the, you know, um, basically we only get 10 minutes to see patients. You don't give someone a sanitization diagnosis that will affect them for the rest of their lives within a 10 minute appointment. I saw two psychiatrists as well. They saw me for about 20 minutes apiece. Um, this is how bad this is. I actually had raised LT while they were giving it me. I had raised CK levels. The doc a doctor, this was just before, um, I went to this really good doctor. I can't, obviously I can't use names, which makes it very difficult and I can't give surgeries. But the doctor that I was seeing at the time was retiring. I'd actually seen him for a few years and he wrote a concerns letter stating that the raised ALT, he believed may be due to underlying pathology, but the psychiatrist um, actually went ahead and gave me a somatization, which actually uh, made it impossible for other doctors. Well, it, it made, life so difficult that other doctors weren't ever going to, um, to take me seriously from that point because somatization actually became my diagnosis. And I was repeatedly told that I was somatizing. When I went into A&E, even when this, um, uh, the doctor that um, wrote to A&E, um, I think I had a, 
three doctors made statements that I wasn't somatizing and asked for blood gases. Um, the, a clinical psychologist that I was sent to afterwards, who was very nice, actually was treated me very well, actually wrote a letter on my behalf asking for blood gases to be done as well. Um, and they were never done. It, from This was from 2002. So 2002, 2003, I think um, a number of doctors were asking for blood gases, which identified this. But because the somatization was already in my significant medical history, first thing that a doctor would see, when I, when I entered A&E, I was treated as though I had a psychological problem. That was it. So in 18 years, I was left um, without the investigations ever being done. I think there are some serious issues here for, um, for a lot of other people. I mean, I, I'm also really worried. I was very lucky um, in terms of um, very lucky to have got a diagnosis at all. Very lucky to have come across the... Um, very lucky to have come across people like Professor Hooper. Very lucky to have just... Um, found um, delactic acidosis um, which is a really um, supposedly rare problem um, but other people out there I believe will be um, just lost within this maze this is um, and this is what I'm I'm trying to fight for at the moment so I'm hoping that I can at least get some of these people out I, I believe like um, Shidi and the Australian researchers, at least there, there must be a subset in there that, are, um, that have um, bacterial overgrowth as their problem, whether it be um, people with IBS, people with uh, far worse forms of bacterial overgrowth. I believe that there are more than one. There are probably combinations of bacterial overgrowth. There are a number of delactic producing bacteria that Shidi um, uh, um, and the Australian researchers found. Um, and I believe that there's a good possibility that those people with really serious problems may have and may be producing uh, delactate. And so anybody who's listening and they're thinking, well, you know, maybe that's what's going on with me. How would they get a diagnosis, even if they're not in the UK? What's the test that they need to seek out? Two stages. The first with, 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 with bacterial overgrowth is itself, just bacterial overgrowth. So you'd go to a gastroenterologist and say, um, usually this is because you have gut symptoms. The gut symptoms are um, the illness itself and gut symptoms are, are um, they're part and parcel of the same thing, but the gut symptoms are specifically, you get um, um, bloating, a lot of burping, a lot of um, production of gases. Um, you can get abdominal pain and, um, things like one of the things that I found that um, um, actually um, you have problems eating things like carbohydrates if I have a meal of carbohydrates now I'll just pass virtually pass out I'll go to, you know virtually um, fall asleep straight after I mean it's really um, horrendous I can't stay awake um, if I eat um, the uh, low carb uh, meals that I'm having of meat vegetables uh, etc even some yogurts which um, um, with some carbohydrates I can as long as I keep the carbohydrates very low I don't have this problem whatsoever um, I've forgotten the question <laughs> uh, so it's two stages to get tested yes yes the first um, I got I was diagnosed with bacterial overgrowth so you would go to a gastroenterologist ask for a second opinion from a gastroenterologist especially if you have um, gut symptoms um, gut symptoms of bloating, maybe feeling sick, you may be bringing food up, burping, um, um, getting abdominal pain, and just having general prob general um, gut problems. Um, those are a good sign, and that's the place to start by going to a gastroenterologist. Um, the next is going to be far more difficult because I'm probably one of the first people to be diagnosed with this, and. Um, Without giving the name of the um, with the with the, of the gastroenterologist, I think you're going to have to be rather pushy um, and actually ask for tests. I've just recently asked um, because I needed to find out if what what would happen if I actually fall ill in uh, in Cheltenham where I live. Um, I've been told that there are no tests for delactic acidosis, only anion gap, which means I have to be really very unwell 
for any test to be performed whatsoever here. But you need to find out where you can get tests for um, delactate itself, possibly through um, the people that Sarah Myhill use. Um, I think it's John McLaren, I can't remember. That there are some um, there are some um, people that'll uh, that'll run these tests themselves, probably privately. It's well worth the the expense. If you've already been diagnosed with bacterial overgrowth, it's worth definitely worth the expense and probably worth asking for um, a delactic um, consultant expert um, gastroenterologist. So you said that uh, because of your extensive use of antibiotics, you've grown resistant to them and that you're thinking of trying a fecal matter transplant. For folks yep. who aren't familiar with that term, what is that? It's um, uh, basically using um, poo from a super donor to actually um, readdress the bowel dis um, the, the, the dysbiosis itself to actually put back uh, a good um, um, working um, bacteria into your gut. The, I believe that there's a super donor that they have at, um, at the moment in the UK who's reversed a number of other um, gut conditions. And it's, and it's um, for me, it just seemed logical that this would be able to um, be a good way to go with mine. Now, nobody um, with Delactica, I don't think anyone in this country has actually had it done, but I have done some reading and I found that some that, that, that there have been a number of cases in which there's been a reversal through this, which, um, which also means that um, if there was the possibility that a number of people had bacterial overgrowth within chronic fatigue and ME, then there's a possible way of reversing it. But I'm pushing ahead at the moment. Um, it, when I went to go and ask them about um, um, when I went to the um, uh, specific um, hospital where you can get this done, they've not even, the, the first gastroenterologist I talked to said, I've never heard of dilactic acidosis. He said, I'd better Google that. I thought, right. <laughs> anyway, um, the, uh, the chap that runs the fecal um, transplants is now doing further tests for me anyway, the tests that should have been done a long time ago. So hopefully those will all be done and I can then get on and try and reverse this as quickly as possible. But no, there's no, there, I'm literally um, pioneering and trying to get, uh, trying to get this done. I've had to uh, literally diagnose myself and work out my own forms of um, my own treatment. Wow. So a sculptor becomes a, a medical person. Unfortunately, yeah. the last thing I wanted to do. I'd just rather get off now and um, um, be sculpting. As soon as I can get away from all this, the better. Um, but uh, there are a lot of other people that are obviously very unwell out there. And um, I need to get as much information and, as I can out there for other people. Uh, well, when, thank, yeah. Thanks for sharing your story, Paul. Um, I, I'm, I agree with you. I, I'm sure you're not the only one who has uh, delactic acidosis and there's many, many other people that uh, have yet to be diagnosed. So hopefully with the information that you've shared, they can start going down that path and figuring it out if, if maybe can that's I say one other on. thing? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that there are possibly other forms of bacterial overgrowth as well, not just necessarily delactic. Uh, forms and there are probably a number of metabolites involved as well. They may be as bad, worse, or I have no idea until that research is done. Like I said, this is an unexplored continent and it's um, badly needs researching. Yeah, well, maybe we'll uh, check in with you in a few months and see how you're doing yeah. um, and get an update from you. Lovely, nice to meet you anyway. Thank you, Paul. Um, and just for the folks that are listening, we'll try and put in the show notes the links to the the, uh, yeah. the folks that Paul was mentioning and any other resources that he thinks would be helpful. Okay, thanks, Paul. Rest hard. All the best and good luck. Good luck to everybody. I know they need it. I find Paul's idea that the somatization diagnosis is a human rights violation intriguing. 
Psychological research is notorious for its lack of rigor and low-quality results. Very few psych research results are replicated by other labs. So to dismiss a patient's physical symptoms as psychological seems irresponsible, and no doubt contributes to medical error being the third leading cause of death. So yeah, I think there is some validity in stating that a somatization label, because it precedes testing and treatment, is a human rights violation. It certainly violates basic logic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Error Interviews. Please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a kind comment. If you need support from an experienced counselor around medical error or living with chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly donor by visiting patreon.com slash medical error interviews and become a premium patron. Thank you for listening and do something kind for yourself today.